0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Diyadam Longcomer, the host of this channel. Today, I'm here with Professor Joel Robbins to talk about his book, Theology and Anthropology of Christian Life. Now, Personally, I don't have to mention so much about Joel Rubins and his work, just to say that I've been very influenced by his work from the initial part of my uh, research life. And I'm very excited to have this conversation with Joel Rubins today here, Professor Joel Rubins. And I'm sure that it'll be a wonderful conversation and then the listeners could clean a lot from this uh, very conversation that we are having today. So straight away, let me go to Professor Joel Robbins and ask about his work. So Professor Joel Robbins, can you tell us something about yourself?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for for having me on your channel and uh, really, uh, really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this for a long time as well. So uh, very happy to be here. I am a sociocultural anthropologist, and I did my original fieldwork in Papua New Guinea. At the time that I went to Papua New Guinea, anthropologists certainly in Papua New Guinea, but really nowhere else either, focused very much on Christianity. It wasn't a central It wasn't a central topic for anthropological study, and there's been lots of discussion about why that is. Anthropology was was sort of focused at that time on studying things other than what were going on at home, and for many anthropologists, Christianity were was what was going on at home, and almost every other discipline in in the, uh, uh, the Western Academy was studying all the humanities and social sciences studied Christianity. So anthropology had sort of left it to the side, and I went to the field expecting to study certain aspects of traditional religion in Papua New Guinea and discovered that even though I had gone to work with a group called the Rotman people, who lived very remotely with no electricity, no roads connecting them to anywhere, not in, almost no participation in the market economy, and also, having never been missionized, had converted themselves to a very charismatic form of Christianity. And, and, and a lot of my early work was about their experience, how how people come to learn about Christianity, what they make of it when it 's really their own project, not something that missionaries are constantly guiding or shaping um, and at the same time, I was one of a small group of people in the in the in the nineteen mid nineteen and late 1990s working to have anthropology become interested in Christianity and to see what it could mean to the discipline to take Christianity seriously. And there were a group of us working on that, that it has now become very much a normal science and anthropology to study Christianity. So it can be hard for people, even your, your own generation <laughs> to, uh, to recognize that even just 25 years ago, nobody studied it. I, I was told when I came back that why don't I get this Christianity stuff out of my system and then write a dissertation about who the Erotmen really were. So uh, things have changed a lot. Part of that, as part of that change for myself, I became interested in, in trying to learn a little bit about theology and uh, as an academic discipline and to think about what anthropology might learn from theology. The the famous anthropologist Clyde Cluckhorn, or once famous anthropologist in the middle of the twentieth century, he taught at the at the Department of Social Relations at Harvard University. This was Talcott Parsons' big project, and he was at, at during his time quite an influential anthropologist. He had once called anthropology an intellectual poaching license, meaning that it gives you the right to go into any other field and just take what you what you want or what you need and anthropology's done that very successfully with linguistics, very successfully with history. During my lifetime, a little bit earlier, it did it very successfully with um, with psychology, and it's been doing it lately uh, with philosophy, with phenomenology, and philosophy of ethics. And, and so I thought, well, given that anthropologists are now studying Christianity, becoming much more sophisticated in their understanding of the traditions of that religion, maybe theology could also be a good intellectual dialogue partner with anthropology. And um, that's what brings us to this book, Theology and the Anthropology of Christian Life. I, I had the opportunity to, to deliver what, what are called the Stanton Lectures in the, anthropo- in, the, the, in the Philosophy of Religion to the Divinity School at Cambridge University. And I took that opportunity to begin to get a little bit systematic about learning more about theology and thinking about uh, how theology could make a real difference to how anthropologists think. And then also exploring a little bit what anthropology might contribute to theology. So that's sort of the road I took to get to this book I could elaborate more on uh, on anything you might like me to but that's the basic that's the basic path that got me
1: here. Thank you very much for highlighting to us about uh, yourself and the current book that we are going to discuss now. You know, in one of the thing that initially comes to mind when looking at the title itself and also the uh, introduction is about theories right so why uh, why does anthropology in that sense needs uh, the conceptual framework by theologians why do we need it or what's the what's the usefulness of it and in in that sense we can also ask okay what does anthropology lack, in the sense that we have to you know take or can we conceptualize it that way or is there a different understanding to that way
0: yeah, that's a that's a great question. I will say, by the way, because uh, you use the word theory at the beginning of the question. When I was a graduate student in the in the late eighties, early nineties, and through a lot of the nineties, actually, it anthropology was considered a very theoretical discipline. People from other disciplines say, "Oh, well, you anthropologists, you've got you have a lot of sort of theoretical um, tools." Uh, you know, this was it, it, structuralism had sort of put anthropology at the center of theoretical debate in the human sciences in the 60s and 70s. And, and then there were many other new developments of sort of Marxist kinds of frameworks and things. Uh, so I've always thought of anthropology as a very theoretical discipline, but I'm not sure that it's been uh, as, as theoretically um, prominent. In the last twenty years, as it kind of was when I was first attracted to it, so I certainly like the idea of theology reminding us of our theoretical commitments because it has commitments of its own that, as you say, are different so what what does the anthropology lack that's a great question i didn't I have to confess I didn't go into it thinking about it that way, but one of the things that was clear to me in, in writing the book and in some work I've done afterwards with the anthropologist uh, Khaled Farhani, um, who wrote the book Redeeming Anthropology, which is a, a good book to read alongside this one, I think, um, is that anthropology, like all of the social sciences, is really fundamentally a secular discipline. It's... Its roots are in the development of the secular university, and it, and it and it and it it really um, it as it were depends in many ways on a secular outlook, and it, it, one thing you can say about that is anthropology went through a period where it questioned almost all of its foundations. You know, it questioned its relationship to colonialism, questions its relationship to racism. It questioned its relationship to Western metaphysics. It questioned its relationship to writing and certain kinds of realist writing. But oddly enough, it really has not fully confronted its relationship to secularism. So one of the things that I think theology can usefully point anthropology toward is what it is like to do intellectual work without necessarily making secular assumptions. That's not saying that anthropology should give up its secular assumptions or not give them up. The last chapter of the book, which was the one that really wasn't written as one of these lectures and Really, the peer review process kind of several peer reviewers said you've really got to confront this, and and you need to do it at the end of the book. I, you know, I try to think through that. I'm not sure I get much further than um, than some of what I've just said, documenting the sort of secular constitution of anthropology, and asking what it would mean to go beyond that. But there, there are. People now, uh, Khalid Farani is one of them, Amira Mittermeier is another one. In her own way, Tanya Lerman has sort of worked on this. There are people who are trying to think about what an anthropology beyond secular assumptions would be like, but I'm not sure we have yet really integrated that into our theory making or our theoretical. Our, our our yes our theoretical creativity has not yet fully taken on what it would be to embrace what other than secular fundamental worldviews
1: yeah, quite interesting, and I think the chapters in this book uh, as you also say are, are trying to you know take these theological concepts as um, theoretical resources for anthropology and I think that aspect of is it is something which is very interesting which we'll kind of uh, dissect one by one now and uh, first of all you talk about theories of cultural reproduction in anthropology which is which which you call it as the continuity thinking in anthropology and you kind of joktabos it with the conceptual framework of ruptures and discontinuity in evangelical Christianity particularly right So, so, so what is this kind of interruption in anthropology thinking about continuity that the the theologian or the theological framework brings?
0: Thank you. That's That's a really helpful question. So very early on in the development of, you know, what ends up being called the anthropology of Christianity, this theme of discontinuity becomes important. It shows up in Birgit Meyer's work and, and also in my own. And I developed this notion that anthropology has been a kind of continuity thinking. In a certain sense, as the social scientists sciences are being born uh, in the in the late 1800s, sociology gets, gets handed change because it's all about modernity and what are all these changes that that modernity is bringing in its train. And if you look at all the great early sociologists, they're all concerned with that and the passing of one way of life and the beginning of a new one. And and more than that, a new one, which is modernity, which is itself committed to kind of constant change. Anthropology gets handed tradition, cultural reproduction, uh, the, the sort of deep core of cultures that are not supposed to change. I think that imagination is pretty deep in anthropology, that also was a real impediment to studying people who called themselves Christians, because the assumption was they couldn't really have changed that much from who they were. So their Christianity had to kind of be a surface phenomenon or a thin veneer, like a wood veneer you lay over particle board or something to make it, make it look better. Um, So my initial um language to talk about that was a language of rupture and discontinuity as you said i as i began to read some serious theology, I came across actually for another reason, something else I work on, the topic of values, uh, some work by Eberhard Jungel, who was a a very, very influential German theologian. A lot of the theologians I end up working with are Lutheran. We might talk about that later, but I didn't set out to do that, but that's how it worked out. Um, And he talks a lot about what he calls interruption, which for him is fundamentally different, I think, than rupture or discontinuity. It's sort of a break in a person's going on, but as in an interruption in conversation, you eventually come back around to where you were, but from a different vantage point or with a different outlook. And so part of what I try to do in the first chapter of the book is say, well, what if we took this concept of interruption from Jungle and replaced... The notion of rupture and discontinuity, which I was really developing out of my sense of where anthropological theory needed a push, not out of what, say, the Rotman people in Papua New Guinea were saying. They were saying everything's different now, but they didn't use the word rupture. They didn't use the word discontinuity. And so I try to rethink with Jungle what interruption means. Part of why interruption strikes me as a richer concept in a sense than rupture and discontinuity, is that in Jungle's model, after an interruption, you do look back at what was there before, but you look back at it from a new vantage point for him, a vantage point of, you know, having become Christian. And then you have to sift through all those things from the past and decide what you're going to keep, what you're going to let go of, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly the Rotman people I worked with were doing that. And I found that Jungle helped me to be able to do that. And so that's what I was trying to do by bringing in that particular concept. Maybe I should add that, that part of the framing of the book is looking at what at the time when I was writing these lectures was very popularly known as the ontological turn, but also tracing its history. Uh, 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 back to Marilyn Strathern, and before that to Roy Wagner and before that to Louis Dumont, who of course worked in India, was this idea of making theory out of concepts you learn from people in the field. And my version of this was going to be, I was going to go to theologians to learn certain kinds of concepts and then try to make anthropological theory out of them. So I, The first one I try to do that with is this notion of interruption, which also, by the way, Jungel uh, is just phenomenally sophisticated to my eye and almost sounds anthropological sometimes, so I dwell on him. But there are other theologians, uh, Johann Baptist Metz, Moltmann, um, Lievenbeuf, a Catholic theologian, who also work with this idea. So I tried to take this concept from theology and say, well, what if we... Theorize with that?
1: Yeah, I think as we go further into the conversation, one of the things that I've realized uh, when working in, in anthropology of Christianity is something where when I look at the context that I'm working into, Things are somehow different in the sense, you know, uh, my context. My uh, even if I'm studying Christian community, you know, when when I'm studying the impact of mission and and the you know social political history and all of those things, when someone from the other field is studying the similar phenomena, but also the result is very different, right? Uh, the result comes out very different, and somehow um, that is quite interesting about um, the, the anthropological study of Christianity in that sense. But also at the same time, when we we talk about theology in the sense in the context that i'm studying there are what people call themselves as the tribal theologians and they theologize from the tribal perspective and all of those aspects are there so theology in that sense is also very like the christian life that we have in the sense so so how i mean in anthropological sense i mean as you have thought about these things i mean what is the uh, use of this or you know how do we understand all these aspects I think I know what you're asking, but stop me if i'm if I'm going in the wrong
0: direction. Are you talking about what do we want to count as theology in In other words, one of the debates that is already happening amongst people interested in anthropology and theology is a debate about whether we want to this isn't an either or, but you can take theology to be what academic theologians produce. You can also take theology to be what every every speaking Christian produces. So, for instance, Naomi Haynes kind of takes that later very open kind of definition: anything a, a Christian says about about God is is theology. Certainly, in this book, I'm going way to the other side and looking at um, at academic theologians, partially because this book had its origin in, in a series of lectures given to academic theologians. Uh, I mean, anthropologists came also, but it was the theologians who, it was the, it's their lecture series, they're the ones who invited me. Um, but also partially because I have another project which is just still in its beginning stages, but was in its beginning stages even when I worked on this project, which is to study theological education, because I think sometimes we don't take the intellectual life of Christians or of religious people in general as seriously as we might. And so I had an interest in theology also from that point of view, again, partially as a mirrored anthropology. What is it like to produce knowledge in the contemporary academy but not necessarily within the secular constitution of that academy.
1: I think the one you pointed out is um, important. I mean, you, you go to the writing because I think as I have, um, as I mentioned in the question, where I talk about uh, tribal theologians, right, and also they are looking at. They are they are theologians, but also looking at theology from a very different vantage of point and coming up with a conceptual different conceptual framework. So uh, when we talk about theology, theology is also varied in that sense. There are multiplicity of how they conceptualize um aspects and things.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's part of what's sort of exciting about this anthropology theology dialogue is that hopefully we could bring in all, all kinds of voices, right? So including tribal theologians, indigenous theologians from elsewhere. Uh, Matthew Tomlinson has recently written a book about uh, uh, theologians from Oceania, from the Pacific Islands, uh, academic theologians, but who grew up in Pacific Islands communities and teach at a at seminaries in the south pacific yeah so i think that's very important i have to confess there's not much of it in this book but uh, that's not because i don't think it's important
1: Now, one of the things that you mentioned, and also I've listened to a lecture by you on the the anthropology of judgment, where you say that one thing we can clean from the theologians is the aspect of judgment. And I, I kind of garnered from the talk and also from the book that, you know, is still in the formative stage. The thinking about the anthropology of judgment is still in the formative stage. So can you explain to us about how do we think about anthropology of judgment and also in which direction do we move ahead? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah that you're very right that it's in the formative stages. So in some sense the first topic that you brought up the one about interruption as opposed to rupture and discontinuity that was kind of going back over old ground and trying to unsettle it. The 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 discussions of judgment in the book are are a very different thing and you're right to say that they're information Um one of the things so there's two sides to this I I came into anthropology and I came into it in the US this is worth saying because I now teach in the UK but I I was you know I am from the US and I I, I, I until 2013 my whole academic life had unfolded in the US in the US when I was trained one of anthropology's big um, calling cards, or one of the certainly one of the biggest things that had given to the culture, and one of the things that attracted young people to it, you know, as I was when I chose to focus on it, was the notion of relativism that you really can't judge other people except from your own social, cultural point of view. And so your judgments really can't be valid. So you have to work very hard to try to understand how things make sense to other people in their own terms. I think anthropology has slid further and further away from that. I think most anthropologists aren't quite full-blown relativists anymore. Maybe they never were, but they at least for purposes of conversation often behaved like that. But anthropology as a discipline now, is very, very often judging the lives of people it studies. It doesn't necessarily judge the people themselves, but it judges people's lives to be deprived, to be difficult, to be unfair. Um, Often, in terms of blaming people for this unfairness, for suffering, for things like that, you don't end up blaming the people you work with. You blame the elites that shape their lives or you blame wider structures. But I find anthropology is full of judgment these days. One of the things I found really interesting as I got more and more uh, deeply into theology is that theologians have always made judgments. I cite very prominent theologian Catherine Tanner saying, you know, theologians have always got to make judgments about what constitutes sort of acceptable Christianity or what, or authentic Christianity. Or I forget what word she uses. She's a super sophisticated theologian who's written a book about culture. I mean, she knows a lot of anthropology. But at bottom, she says theologi- theology is a judgmental discipline. So I got interested in how theologians are trained to make judgments. And I... I organized my discussion of this in the book around how theologians and anthropologists judge the prosperity gospel. Uh, that's that kind of Christianity where people believe that God wants his followers to be healthy and wealthy in this life and where people organize a lot of their worship around telling God what they want and asking God to supply it. Both anthropologists and theologians are Academic ones are often made quite uncomfortable by this kind of Christianity, which is—I don't know if it's popular where you do field work, uh, but it's popular in urban New Guinea. It's popular a lot of places. Popular in the United States, people think Donald Trump sort of grew up out of around early versions of this. Um, and I found that the anthropologists sort of just make their judgments based on their own. Sort of unexamined assumptions, whereas the theologians really have to lay out either the biblical basis of their criticism or, or the, the 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 basis in the Christian tradition of their of their judgment. They're they're really trained in supporting their judgments, and they tend to be much more aware, or they're much more I don't know if they're more aware or not, but they're. I, I mean, it may be that the anthropologists are very aware of this, but the theologians are always quick to say, "Look, I'm a." I'm a sort of privileged person living a fairly comfortable life. And uh, so I've gotta be really careful judging people who have almost none of the advantages I have for following a form of Christianity that doesn't appeal to me. You know, I'm gonna have to find grounds for judgment that aren't just that, hey, I don't need this. And so I don't think it's, it's very good. So yeah, so I do spend a lot of time on that. Question, where we go from there is something I'm still very much thinking about. As you said, it's pretty much in process, but I do think it's someplace anthropology can learn a lot from theology because theolog- theologians are quite judgmental, but they also are trained in how to support their judgments, be consistent in them, and be careful not just to reproduce their own knee jerk assumptions in making. Those judgments,
1: yeah, quite interesting, yeah. And so, moving on, you talk about uh, sin and atonement, and what we can learn from the theologians here in terms of the their conceptual framework. Now, you know, for me, uh, I'm I'm also. really interested in theology and i read works by theologists not that i have read or craps everything but somehow and uh, somehow i try to understand certain aspects of this and the place where i'm doing my field work the population that i'm studying is um, the Baptists. There are um, majority of them are the Baptist communities, and uh, when we talk about sin and atonement and all, in terms of uh, what we call as um, doctrines, there are uh, you know different standpoints on this in terms of theological understanding of it. But one of the things that I also found uh, very interesting is how the pastors, in essence, in the Baptist church, translate these doctrines because they do not really stand up and. S- you know, in the church sermons and all, they do not really talk about doctrines, doctrines as such. But they, they take examples from the Bible, the everyday life, and then you know translate these doctrines in such a way that, that might be applicable to the people. And that that was, I mean, in in one sense, um, these theologians, these pastors, and all are really good communicators in that sense of how they can communicate the doctrines and all, all of those aspects. So, um, quite really interesting about this uh, very topic that you discuss about uh, sin and atonement and. and how we can understand this aspect from the theologians and also, you know, how uh, anthropologists uh, goes about trying to understand this one.
0: Yeah, thanks. This is definitely one of the chapters I learned the most writing. I should say I initially wrote a version of this chapter with the anthropologist uh, Leanne Williams-Green, who, like yourself and like me, uh, studied Baptists and in part For me, this was my... uh, Uh, Eurotman, if you look at how they worship and a lot of their ideas, they're they're definitely very charismatic. They look like other charismatic Christians, but the background, the kind of Christianity that was in their area that they sent their kids out to learn was Baptist. And nowhere is that clearer than their kinds of ideas about sin. And so this was sort of me re connecting with the Baptist strain in Eurotman thought, having spent a lot of time on the very obvious sort of Pentecostal aspects of it. I mean, they would be charismatic Baptists, you know, technically. One of the things that had always, from the beginning of my own work, been a challenge to me is probably the most influential. There was very little, as I said, about Christianity and anthropology. When I was starting out to write my first stuff on it but what but one very powerful early body of work that was there was the work of birgit meyer i don't know if you've encountered that or many people have encountered it now but uh, her work was very much focused on demonology and the devil and the importance of the devil to the Uwe christians she had studied in africa and Every And since that was the only kind of Christianity most anthropologists had ever really thought about, people were always asking, well, where's the devil? Where's the devil in, in my work on the Leratman in New Guinea? And, you know, I looked through all my field notes that just the devil just wasn't that important. And when you look carefully... At what was going on is Eurotman felt that most of the bad things that happened in the world were because of their own sinfulness, not because of the devil making bad things happen or not because of the devil making them do bad things. They were perfectly capable of doing bad things on their own. Right. So I was actually examining a Ph.D. thesis on uh, on Himalayan uh, Christians and. This person introduced me to the work of Gustav Aulin, who had been a who was an important um Swedish theologian who had written a a very influential book called christus Victor where he he talks about three different models of atonement that is what does how does jesus's death work in in saving people and 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 uh, we'll leave one of them. Aside, because uh, it, it, I don't, I don't talk about it much in the book. The idea that it affects Christians because you should emulate, um, you should emulate Jesus. But two others were one model of atonement is that what Jesus does is he he substitutes for us. He he gives his life to take our sin away. Okay, and this is called the penal substitution model. Of, of atonement, which, as I'm sure you know, is, is very deeply important in the Baptist tradition. But there is this other model that's very important, which was what Allen calls the Christ, Christus Victor model, which is that actually what Jesus was doing was fighting off evil forces in the world and fighting off Satan. And so that how atonement works is it gives you the power to fight the kinds of devils and bad spirits, the devil and the bad spirits that could lead you further into sin, that could lead you, um, that could lead you to sort of destroy your own life and your own world. So, in a sense, those two models, one of them sees people, the 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 penal substitution model takes human fallenness very, very seriously and says, well, people just are fallen and they're going to need Jesus to substitute himself for them in order for them to be saved. The Christus Victor model is more that Jesus is going to give you the power to fight off evil in the world that will try to draw you in. So what I'm trying to do with atonement is there say, actually, we see these two types of models of atonement being really, really important in different Christian groups. And they really shape the the nature of Christianity as a lived religion in the places where they're important. If you're focused on kind of human fallenness and sinfulness, then you're constantly worried about controlling your own self and sort of get very interested in purity and asceticism and things like that. If what you're doing is fighting off a world of evil forces, then you, um, you're going to have, you're going to be much more focused on a kind of active, almost militaristic kind of, of Christian life. And so they really lead to very, very different. They lend very, very, very different tones to Christian life. And, this was particularly interesting for me because Pentecostals can be on either side. They can be... So it's really the fact that the Eurotman were exposed to Baptist Christianity. They have that penal substitution model. They talk about it all the time. They, as you said with some of the, the pastors where, where you work, they may not call themselves theologians, but they speak this language very, very fluently. For are always saying, Jesus he bought us back, you know, he paid off our debts, the word for debt in, uh, in, in, when they translate, I mean, when they translate the word sin into the Urap language, it is debt that they talk about, which is, I think, also true uh, in other traditions. So I don't know if I was very clear about that. But that was what interested me. The, The other thing is, is there's, great debates about whether penal substitution as a model of atonement leads to um, violence, leads to violence against women, violence against children. So I try to look at how that plays out in Eurotman a little bit. I think that that is not a necessary part of the doctrine. What's necessary about, uh, about the penal substitution model is that it focuses on individuals and their sinfulness, rather than evil spirits and the devil and the ways that people can be led astray from outside of themselves.
1: That's something quite really interesting uh, when we think about uh, sin and the nature of atonement in that sense. So, uh, coming to the next uh, point that you discuss about is where you talk about eschatology. Now... You know, very, very interesting in the, when you talk about this cartology, in the context that I study, I kind of... Um See or believe, understand that you know the kind. The, the people's eschatological view is kind of like has kind of changed according to the social political situations. In that sense, quite really interesting because uh, initially, uh, you know, when there was this um, when the, the colonial administrators and all they went, and you know, when the Indian administration came to Northeast, and you know, uh, kind of like uh, the people in Nagaland, many of the people were uh, kind of uh, tortured, their houses, churches were burned down and all of those things uh, happened by the Indian army. Now, during that time, one of the things that was very prominent among them was like uh, the, the hev- going to heaven, you know, that you know at the end times will come going to heaven and all of those things will lead to something else and and that was something which is very prominent. Now, when I see the context now, the discussion has been become very different now. We don't really talk much about Uh, heaven or hell or the other worldly aspect of it but then we talk about this worldly aspect of it where how christians should live in this world and all of those aspects is the social political uh, situation has also changed so now this uh, this discussion that you do you put it under the uh, word called the leaf eschatology now i'm really interested in how you kind of try to delve into this very topic and understand eschatology from the anthropological point of view yeah
0: I think eschatology is a topic that is almost always generative. Anthropologists have been interested in what they've called millenarian movements for a very long time. Arguably, one of the first sort of proto-ethnographies written in the United States before anthropology really got formed as a discipline was written by a, a government agent. Later, a government anthropologist who worked with Native Americans about the Ghost Dance religion uh, that spread across a lot of uh, of uh, Native America um, in the um, in the late eighteen hundreds, I guess, early nineteen hundreds, um, that was very much a millenarian movement. I mean, I, and and the the part of the world I work in, Papua New Guinea, people have been studying millenarian movements called cargo cults there from when anthropology first began to be done there. Um, they're very, very powerful feature of, of human... They can be a very powerful feature of, of social life. One of the things I was trying to do in this book, social scientists often treat these kind of movements for the end of the world as things that rise and fall. That's why they call them movements, right? They kind of have a beginning and they grow and then they have a middle where everything's very intense and then they end and then they're sort of quiet for a while and then they come back a little bit like what you maybe were saying was happening in Nagaland, right? Sometimes people are very oriented to heaven and then other times they're, they're, they're busy with other things. But I also think there's a kind of eschatological living which can sit side by side with everyday life. And when I first started to think about this, I think this sounded kind of exotic. In other words, I think the Erotman... Mm -hmm. One of the examples I, I use in the book is Eurotman will go through periods of a couple of weeks where they're sure that Jesus could come at any moment. And they spend all their time in church uh, and they pray very fervently and they they confess their sins a lot and they, they, they work to cleanse themselves of sin to be ready when Jesus comes back. They'll do that for a couple of weeks, but they're subsistence agriculturalists. As I said, they're not in the cash economy. There's no way they're going to get food if they're not planting their gardens. And after a couple of weeks, the pastors will always say, you know, Jesus would be a lot happier if he came back and found you in your garden working than if he came back and he found you stealing from somebody else because you spent all your time in church and didn't work at all. So they kind of have a way of regulating their their eschatological intensity such that they can live their everyday life. They're always looking for signs of Jesus's possible return. They're always open to that possibility, but they don't give up on everyday life either. It's not that kind of movement social scientists expect where they sell all their possessions and, and go live on top of a mountain and, and, and wait for everything to end and um, I, so I was trying to capture that. And I used some some theologians, particularly uh, Moltmann here who have talked about this kind of way of living with eschatology as an approach to everyday life, not an escape from it, not an escape from politics, not I, I also use Pan in this particular chapter. Uh, as as a as a way to think about um how millenarianism, how eschatology can be part of lived religion and everyday life and not not a kind of withdrawal from them now it can be a withdrawal it it can take that form, but it it doesn't have to the reason i'm one thing I find quite interesting is there's a a, a version of this that's important around the world. I don't know if it's important in Nagaland now, but uh, it, and technically it's called disp- disp- dispensational premillennialism. We won't worry too much about this, but this is the kind of eschatology of the left behind novels, which were so popular in the United States, were made into movies, etc. This notion of the rapture and Jesus could come at any moment and the rapture would happen and those who were already saved would be taken up to heaven. That's very much a kind of lived everyday eschatology. There are people in the United States who have bumper stickers on their cars that say, in case of rapture, this car will have no driver. Um, but but they still drive in their car and they go to work and they do all the things they need to keep everyday life going. But they're ready at any moment for it to stop. I think that's a really powerful way to live that... Um, certainly certain kinds of Christianity cultivate, and that a lot of people who, who don't live within that kind of world have trouble imagining what it would be like to live within it. And, and one of the goals of anthropology is to help people imagine lives they themselves don't lead. So I thought it was useful to be able to draw from theology to illustrate what living in this way was like.
1: Yeah, that's a very important aspect of the leaf eschatology. Now, coming to the next discussion, you talk about passivity and you talk about it from the Lutheran perspective. This is an aspect where we try to understand our action and also how we try to perform certain responsibilities. So, uh, I would like you to unpack uh, this uh, aspect that you're discussing about.
0: Sure, I'd be happy to. So, this the the chapter that you're talking about in some ways turns the table a little bit because uh, in all the other chapters, I'd been picking up at least themes from the anthropology of Christianity and then bringing theological concepts to bear on rethinking that those discussions. This chapter that you're talking about is focused on the gift, which is a an absolutely central concept for anthropology and uh it it's something that anthropologists as i'm sure you know learn in their very earliest courses and it's extremely powerful because it it really is a part of human life so it's very good to teach with i remember my first year teaching i i had a very uh very brilliant but also quite scary uh sort of senior mentor. Uh, she'd mentored a lot of anthropologists. She was she she didn't write much, which is very well known as a teacher. And it was sort of the fourth week. And I said, Yeah, finally I think my teaching is starting to work. I think and she said, Oh well this was the week you taught the gift, right? And I said, Yeah. And she said, well don't don't be too proud of yourself. You know, the gift is easy to teach because people as soon as they're told about it, they're like, oh yeah, I knew about that. I know about the need to give gifts, the need to receive them, the need to give them back, you know, to repay them. Um, so she sort of took me down a, a, a pet, You know, she, she made sure I didn't get to thinking I was doing such a great job. It's just the gift is easy to teach because people haven't thought about it much, certainly in the United States, which is not a culture where people think much about the gift in those ways, but they totally know the logic of it, right? So famously... Marcel Most, Durkheim's nephew, wrote a very short book called The Gift, where he said that, you know, gift giving is very central to human social life, and that it has three, it's made up of three obligations. There are situations you're in where you're obligated to give something to someone else. They're obligated to receive it. And then the third obligation is for them to return it. When I'm teaching this to students in the US and in the UK, I use the example of how people say, I love you in romantic relationships. There's a point in the relationship, at least in the US and in the UK, it seems when you sort of have to say, I love you, if you're not saying it and you've been a couple for quite a while, That that's awkward. So you are obligated to say it. If somebody says it to you, you're definitely obligated to receive it. If somebody says "I love you" and you say, "Well, that's nice for you," or "I'm happy you feel that way," or "Well, that's your problem," <laughs> that that's going to end the relationship probably, or caused a lot of trouble. At the same time, once you've received it, the clock starts. You're going to need to give it back sometime. So that's how I help people understand the obligate, uh, obligatory part of it. That was part of Moses' point that it it it's really. These are obligations, they're not matters of completely free will, as as in at least the Western imagination about gifts. I came to learn that the Lutheran tradition has a huge debate about the gift of grace from God that goes like this. Humans are completely fallen, right? So they can't, they don't deserve grace, God has to give it. But they're so fallen that really, can they receive it? If they receive it, would there have to be some goodness in them for them to be able to take the kind of action it would take to receive this gift of grace, right? You wouldn't want to say in this Lutheran tradition that people are saving themselves because it's God that saves people. So they have to be able to receive grace without their receiving it being an action they take. And this has led to all kinds of debate, particularly in the Lutheran tradition, but it's there in the Calvinist tradition also where human fallenness is very central. uh, And the Baptists come out of that Calvinist uh, strain. Um, The question of can people receive the gift of grace without that being an action that they take? And that's where passivity comes in. And I rely in particular on a really uh, 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 contemporary theologian whose work I find very powerful, Ingolf Dolferth, who I believe was a student of Jungel, who we started with way back at on Interruption, who tries to lay out the way that we often receive gifts without any action on our part, in receiving them. It, one of his, he has two examples that I find. I find the second one even more powerful. So social, so social scientifically speaking, but his first one is just being born. That's a gift that we have no part in receiving. It happens to us, but it is a gift. But his other one is being made an heir. Somebody could die and leave you, right? Uh, a lot of money but you might not even know they were going to do it. And by the time, in a sense, you know about it, you've already received it because legally, once they die, it's yours. So the gift is something, in a sense, you discover that you've received rather than you go out and receive. And I think that's part of what most meant by it being obligatory. And I really know from my fieldwork in New Guinea that gifts are like this for people. When you get a gift, it can radically change your life because it sets up all these expectations. But you, a certain, where I worked among the Rotman in New Guinea, you cannot ask for a gift, right? That, I mean, that's just very, very taboo. Um, and so a gift is always a surprise. And by the time it's given, in a sense, you are already passively a receiver. Then it's a matter of what you do with that. Reception. So I think that's a place where theology, I think, really powerfully illuminates a part of gift theory that anthropologists had kind of missed, because we pay a lot of attention to the giving, and we pay a lot of attention to the reciprocating, to the giving back, but we don't pay a lot of attention to that middle term of Moses about the obligation to receive. And I I think part of what... most was getting at when he called it an obligation was that you just have to receive it it's not something that you necessarily actively do
1: i have a last question and this is about the you know anthropologist's view on the spiritual world and i mean recently i mean i've also been reading a lot of works by anthropologists on their own personal religious experience um putting it in their works and, you know, trying to explore this aspect from their perspective and, you know, trying to document their everyday, live reality in terms of the community, the religious community and all those things. Uh, that's quite really interesting uh, aspect that I've seen in anthropology being developed. But also at the same time, you know, when we talk about the spiritual world and also specifically when we talk about God and all of those aspects, I think there is certain setback in anthropology of really how do we really understand these aspects and how do we really move forward. Uh, <laughs> with Uh, With this, and also you also mentioned uh, where you talk about uh, God as as an independent agent, right? So uh, how does anthropology really understand this perspective? So how do we really unpack this aspect? Because I think uh, there is this field where we need to really. Give our perspective and try to really understand, because for the people whom we are studying, all of those things are very real to them, right? Uh, the agentive age aspect of God and the spiritual world is very much real to them. So, how does anthropology go into it, and anthropologist go into it, and, and, and try to experience this, and also at the a Buddhist in a certain frame and perspective?
0: That's a, a great question, and and also, as I can tell, you're aware, a very hard one for. Uh, I, I don't think there's a settled answer for that in anthropology, but there's an, a lot of interest in it now, more than I maybe would have expected. And the last chapter of the book is kind of tries to, well, it does try to take that up, but I'm, I, it's definitely not the last word, that's for sure. So there there are all kinds of movements in anthropology to try to th- to think about what a kind of agency That isn't human agency, including collective human agency and the agency of unintended consequences, working their way through society and things, what it would be like to not just, well, to treat that as real and I know there's a, a discussion starting now on theopolitics that's partially about that. What is a kind of excess beyond the sort of human political that can be shaping politics? Uh, Khalid Farani wants to talk about learning, anthropologists learning through revelation. There are a lot of people who, who do sort of treat anything unexpected as potentially divine agency. Uh, and, I mean, there are very sophisticated ways of thinking about this and uh, and, and uh, less sophisticated ways, but anything that's a surprise, that's an interruption in Jungels' sense could be divine agency. I, I think anthropologists are trying to do two things at once here. One is trying to find out how to write better and better ethnographies that don't ignore exactly what you said very well, that... The people we study take divine agency very, very seriously and they feel its effect and they feel its power. And so there's an ethnographic problem of how we write ethnographies that give credit to that. There's also a theoretical problem about can we make, develop anthropological theories that allow for that kind of agency and re- yet remain fully anthropological. And I think that part is very, very unsettled. I don't have a an answer for it. I, there's a there's a part of the book that I don't think always works for people the way I'd like it to, but maybe if I have, a, I know we're running late, but I'll just try uh, very quickly. Uh, Evans Pritchard, who is one of the greatest anthropologists in the history of the discipline, And who also converted as an adult to Catholicism, and so he was not a a religiously unmusical person himself. But one of the many famous works he wrote, the first one actually, was about, uh, or an early one, was about witchcraft amongst the Zandi in Africa. And it's a... 500 page book it's an enormously powerful piece of ethnography it, it it does a lot of things theoretically it's it's a great book but at one point in it he says i am, and it's a book that's very deeply engaged in zondi ways of thinking you know so it really reads like a very modern ethnography in terms of really getting into the life world of of the zondi people themselves it's not it isn't a, a, a work that mostly is theoretically abstracting away from Zandi lives, but as for Zandi, uh, witches are people who are unconscious of their witchcraft power and who kill other people because they have a witchcraft substance in them. And if they get angry or uh, agitated in some way, their witchcraft substance will kill other people. And Evan Richard says, one thing we, we have to assume is that, is that um, witchcraft as the zondi understand it can't be real. It's socially real. It has all kinds of consequences. And that's what he tracks so brilliantly. It has consequences for action. It has consequences for thought. It has consequences for ethical intuitions that zondi have, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it can't be real in the sense that these deaths are actually caused by witchcraft. And one of the things I I sort of say in that last part of the book is it's really important to understand why Evans Pritchard's doing this and why he's doing it. I think is because if it were real in that sense, then anthropologists wouldn't be the ones to study it. You'd get medical doctors out there. You'd get biologists out there. You'd get physicists out there. You'd get people to study the science of this kind of action at a distance that kills people But you wouldn't need, I mean, you know, anthropologists could add how the people themselves understand it, but it wouldn't belong so exclusively to anthropology. So by clearing out spiritual agency, anthropologists open up a lot of space for their own explanatory kinds of work. What an anthropology would look like that was fully ready to give that up and allow spiritual agency into social life on the terms that many religious believers think of it, that's going to take a lot more thinking through than I think anthropology has done, and certainly more than I've done already.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. You know, I've been very much interested in philosophy of religion where they theorize about God. And obviously, the philosophy of religion you're trying to understand and theorize about God coming from the, uh, coming from America and other places are very much influenced by Christianity. You know, and they talk about theism, Classical Theism and all of different types of theism. And I think one of the things that we can clean from is, I, I believe, is also this kind of theoretical framework about God of how they understand, okay, how does God relate to the world in different ways and, you know, how the spiritual being relate to the world. That's an interesting aspect that I've also seen in my own readings, yeah.
0: Ah, yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Right, so probably if we dig deeper into, th- and in fact, I had sort of tried during the COVID period to work with some people to start a project on this, but it just we weren't able to do it in those conditions about... Right. How theologians themselves think about divine agency is probably uh, richer and more complicated than I certainly understand yet. And we probably could learn a lot by borrowing their concepts as well, as you were just saying. Yeah, just, just agreeing with you there.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Joel Rupins, for this wonderful conversation. And can you please tell our listeners and to me about your current project, what are you working on? What am I working
0: on? Uh, okay, so I am working on two things. I am. I also have done a lot of work on the theory of values in anthropology, um, and I am trying finally to write a book about that. I've been publishing articles about that for a decade or more. but I'm I'm finally trying to write a book about that that uh, was supposed to be done a long time ago, but you know life interrupted. Um, but then I would like to do fieldwork on theological higher education, um, probably moral education. I used to think I would go back to the South Pacific to do that, but it's possible now. I, I'm still undecided, but that I might, as I mentioned, there's this Matt, Matthew Tomlinson who's done really good work on that. I may end up doing it in the UK or the United States. I'll, I'll have to see how that goes. But those are my two main projects right now, the anthropology of values and then uh, ethnographic study of theological education.
1: Really interesting. And if anyone wants to reach out to you regarding any of your work or want to ask you something, uh, how do they reach out to you?
0: Um. So I teach at the University of Cambridge in the UK. That's the only email I have. It's on uh, it's on the Cambridge website. Um. I won't read it out here because I just will go by too quickly. But just Google Joel Robbins Cambridge, and you'll find my email. And I'd uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from anybody who like to discuss any of these things.
1: Thank you, Professor Joel Robbins, for being here at New Books Network and having this conversation with me. I'm sure the listeners would have cleaned a lot from your work, and I would also request the listeners to get your book and then go through it, and then they will be enriched more through your work. And thank you for such a wonderful conversation, and you take care. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, thank you too.